welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me is Chris Williams, also of Above the Law. We're here to talk about things happening around the legal world over the last week, big stories and all. Uh, we are not joined by Catherine Rubino, who is on vacation, but we're here and, you know, we're still okay, right? In, in spirit. Yeah, we're, we're, we're good enough. I think. <laughs> well, I'm feeling good. Um, I feel like this yeah. is a, a small talk section. but Oh, there we there go. There it is. Now there's the weight off my shoulder. I just started Sandman yesterday. The, uh, oh, yeah. I haven't yet. Yeah. I've been here about Sandman for years, and I saw the first episode. It's pretty damn good. Nice, nice, nice. I uh, I went to see the Mets game yesterday. I haven't been to that park since they... I, I haven't been to the Mets since they were in Shea, so it's been a really long time. Uh, but yeah, no, so How'd I saw it that. It was interesting. Uh, the Mets won. That's good. Uh, it, was inter- it was actually interesting. I, I'm not much of a baseball fan, as evidenced by I haven't been to a game in over a decade or so. But uh, yeah, no, there was a, it was a perfect game through five and two-thirds, I think. Uh, so kind of impressive like it, it, it had reached that point where you start thinking am i actually going to see a whole perfect game uh, <laughs> and then immediately he gave up a two-run homer but until then uh it had been perfect so it was interesting but yeah so i did that that's about all i've been up to oh i know. was also i was also a plus yes. one for this wedding this weekend oh okay and that was okay. cool uh, we may have nice. done a me and my partner may have done a faux pas of uh outdressing the the folks of honor but you know what happens Ooh. you know it was very colorful they out there the that is hard to do at a wedding listen <laughs> yeah you think these sultry tones were just a white button down t-shirt come on now no i get that i i just like usually at a wedding the folks of honor are they're in their own league where they're wearing stuff that's way out of what most people keep in their closets on a day-to-day basis. So. I'm just kidding. The bride anyway. and groom were phenomenal. Um, I okay. say this one because it's true. And two, at some point. I just realized they may hear this. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, burn bridges. Fair enough. Well, cool. Uh, I think that'll handle it for um, our little small talk period, and we can move on to discussing the big stories of the week. Let's, uh, let's begin with a story that neither of us have actually been covering, but that is nonetheless the biggest story of the week. Our colleague Liz Dye has been covering it. Uh, Alex Jones has, go- has uh, gotten the first of what probably are many jury awards that are going to be slapped on him uh, over the next several months. But Look at God. Alex Jones has, you know, been around for a while pumping conspiracy theories, one of which he pumped was that the Sandy Hook shooting was faked. Uh, This resulted in a lot of damage as his followers decided to harass the parents of victims for a long time. And those folks have sued him in multiple courts. In the Texas case, he was already because of a bunch of other mistakes that they'd made, not complying with discovery orders, et cetera, they had already kind of conceded their causality. And so it was just a jury discussion about what the damages were. Those clocked in at $4.1 million. And then there was a punitive award uh, in the 40-some-odd, 45, 46, whatever. It doesn't really matter because 
And this is where the conversation really comes in, what a lot of people don't get because they think he's going to be spending all this money. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how Texas operates because Texas has a series of you know, anti-trial lawyer laws that are designed to prevent juries from actually giving the awards that they deem appropriate. Uh, so the whole system is taken out of the hands of the jury, and while they've awarded 40-some-odd million, it's capped at, well, and that's the other thing. The law is a little unclear at what it's capped at. It's theoretically capped at two times the compensatory damages. However, there's some argument. Some folks think that means there'll be 8.2 or so of punitive damages. Other folks read the, read the law a little bit differently and say that since it's actually two times plus 175,000, Jones's lawyer thinks, well, there was zero damages that are really compensatory because it was mostly about emotional harm. So therefore, it's only going to be 175,000 in punitives, it, no matter 46 million down to 175 mm. is what they're arguing. Other experts have said that the number is a little bit different, that some of the 4.1 was concrete damages. And so for that, it's going to be that plus 175 and therefore come out to around 300,000. It's really unclear. Mm. But the topic of conversation that, that I think is most, most interesting is that we have we have a situation where juries who we rely upon to make these sorts of decisions are not being trusted, uh, which is, which I think is a crisis for the legal system. I mean, on the one hand, you don't want juries going around causing, you know, willy nilly all these damages right and left, but you can have a cap that is that is adjustable to what's going on, not like this sort of situation where you tell a jury to come up with a decision and then you just ignore it. This sort of tort reform, which a lot of people have been kind of hoodwinked into supporting based on a, you know, a, a kind of cynical ad campaign on, the benefit, on behalf of large corporate interests who say, oh, well, we need to have something to prevent somebody from making a bunch of money when they get third-degree burns from micros uh, from mcdonald's coffee uh that's sort those burns of, are horrible by the way they are and that's and that's a thing that people don't get like people made jokes about that at the time because oh well it's supposed to be hot and it it was third degree they, they were horrifying uh those those burns and the reason we have punitive damages is to prevent people from continuing to do bad things because if, as anybody who's seen fight club knows you can do the math and realize that occasionally paying out a wrongful death award is sometimes cheaper than a recall and punitives exist to prevent that from happening and what has of course everyone instead, that's the rule before the first rule of fight club yeah yeah it's, well i mean yeah it's it's when they're it's when they're in the plane when he's still explaining his job but but yeah, so when you have a system where the jury gets ignored like that, you have a system in which we go back to kind of the rule of if it's cheaper to do the harm and, and write a check than to not do the harm in the first place, we just let the harm happen. Uh, and if that's the kind of society you want to live in, then you live in a society where wealthy people are allowed to do a bunch of damage. Anyway. So that's what's going on there. Obviously, there's, there's uh, more cases. There's overlapping issues of him claiming that his company is in bankruptcy, but that the creditors who are first in line are himself. 
so so they can't pay these damages, but he can get all the money. It, it's it's a bear. It, you know, it, this is a real this is a real issue spotter to come. Some law some law schools putting together a joint bankruptcy tort case that's going to be really uh exam question that's going to be really fun you know it's really easy to talk about how reality puts the onion out of business but i think the real victims here in addition to the parents of the sandy hook massacre other uh, tort professors yeah. you know yeah calidus ai cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right. Well, we're back and let's talk a little bit about a story, another story that neither of us wrote, but that got a lot of play this week. Uh, in social media, a, a, a thing cropped up in social media, uh, Ivana Trump, the first of Donald Trump's many wives, uh, passed away and a picture came out that they buried her on his golf course in a plain grave that just has a tiny little gray slate marker that says her name, basically. Um, you know yeah. what happened, right? To describe it as a pauper's grave, whatever. Uh, yeah, what? So this is totally made up, by the way, so we don't get sued. But what I like to think, my headcanon, is he was playing golf with a buddy. And mm -hmm. then an assistant asked him what we should do with your dead wife's body. His friend yelled out, hole in one. <laughs> and Trump was like, okay, oh, wow. whatever. <laughs> uh, yes. So, so a, a issue came up in social media where a tax researcher said that she'd done some digging and she had come to the conclusion that it seems as though maybe what Trump's trying to do with this decision was put himself in a position to claim a bunch of tax benefits for the golf course because New Jersey has certain rules that say that if you're a cemetery, you get a bunch of tax breaks. Our resident tax columnist, Stephen Chung, wrote an article saying that that's not what's going on. Uh, his analysis is that New Jersey actually has, as one would hope they did, a lot more regulations for something to actually be a cemetery that can claim these sorts of benefits, that you can't just be a one-off burial place to claim these benefits, etc. 
which I think is probably true. The problem, though, is I just feel like this article, which was uh, a lot of folks out there were reading this article, uh, it did very well, uh, because I think a lot of people were interested in getting a tax lawyer's analysis of all this. Uh, it just the more I the more I think about it, like I, I agree with the analysis. I just don't understand what the logic was otherwise. Like, like, like I, I agree that he's probably not going to get these tax benefits, but it's hard for me to think that he wasn't trying to. Uh, it, kind of a you miss 100% of the shots you don't take sort of logic. This isn't even the most absurd thing Trump has done. <laughs> so it's hard, to, well, it's hard to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this because I, I can. It's like it's like sure. evil Mad Libs, like fascist I mean, dictator buries wife body in golf course. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's so absurd. It makes sense. Well, it was, well, what gets me about it is that the more you think about it, it like, this is an this is a person uh, a, who is a public persona. This is a person who cares a lot about appearing, uh, keeping up appearances. I mean, they slap marble and gold on everything that comes close to them. And all I could think was... Does he, though? I, I, I do not believe a person that orders a steak uh, well done with ketchup cares at all about public experience. All about opinions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know as though he expected that to come out. But the point <laughs> is, as somebody who does all that, when you then bury somebody in your golf course with a grave with no real markers or ostentation. Somebody at some point had to think if she isn't being interned in like the fanciest mausoleum ever, it was going to look like something suspicious was happening. Whether it is or isn't, that's, that's what somebody in the public has to, has to think about. And, and given that, what what really was their thinking here? Uh, and so that's why I, I think I agree with Chung's analysis, and I think uh, folks should check it out. But yeah, it's just hard for me to think that even if he's right, there the, that that wasn't part of the plan. Man, oh. also, how many marriages ago was she? He he probably did it as like a fuck you. One, two, two, right? Yeah, two. I mean, like two ago. Yeah, that's that's kind of like an I one move. Like, yeah. Just drive yeah, past her. It's getting yeah, your real, real, real problematic. But anyway, uh, it is an interesting question, and uh, obviously, we don't have any idea why they did it. But uh, the the law does the these laws seem loose enough that it makes you wonder if uh, if somebody should have sat down and said, "If you do this, you're going to get a lot of." You're going to get a lot of people speculating that this is why. Uh, and then I guess they just didn't care. All right. Now, Chris, you had a story. We finally get to a story that one of us actually wrote. You had a story about a, a it was a podcast, right? A, a Harvard pod, professor on a podcast or something like that? Yeah. Harvard professor. Uh, mm. It was a, um interview at the very least. And mm. dude was like, yeah, at some point the Supreme Court just stopped caring about what other people thought about it. <laughs> and like that's a major problem. <laughs> um yeah. That's the that's the concise that's the concise uh description of it and he's not wrong. And the the move that the professor suggests is for a more democratic means of enforcing uh, I guess norms through legal means and like you know like we should invest more authority in Congress or some other legislative body besides six Christians in black robes and three other people. 
But then it's like, I don't really think Nancy Pelosi's going to do much. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, this is, yeah, this is the old, what used to be called the CLS argument, the critical legal studies argument that you actually need to, it's actually good if we walk away from the idea of the court as the gatekeeper to protect rights because it is a fundamentally regressive institution and it you know has all these problems uh, because of its structure. And if and and if in no small part it has led to people caring less about the democratic process because they shrug and say, "Oh, we don't need to care about these issues; those are settled by courts." That was always the argument. The problem with it, it the criticism of it, has always been: you can't have constant legislation about a lot of these issues. A lot of these disputes need to be handled through a opinion that then has broader repercussions. You can't necessarily go around and strike down every single law or deal with every single exception. You can, however, have a court order that then other courts can view as precedent that can cause change. Uh, Unless the legislative branch is given that sort of authority and power, it's unreasonable to assume that the court could go around and micromanage every single issue that comes up. That's the problem with it. Now, I, th- I agree with the sentiment this guy has that, you know, it would be nice if people cared more about legislatures and it would be nice if the Supreme Court, because of all of its institutional problems being kind of a life-tenured aristocracy, didn't have supreme power over everything, and that it was somewhat responsive to popular will. But all of those arguments always, like you said, like I, I have a hard time seeing the legislative branch as having the wherewithal to actually govern that way. Are you saying you doubt the prowess of Mitch McConnell? I, I, I in no way doubt the prowess of Mitch McConnell. I think uh, he's he's very proud. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I just think that. It, well, it's also and I, I this is a thing that for longtime listeners of the show know that when Ellie Mistal was the co-host here, he and I would talk about a lot, which is one of the problems is that the two parties have different victory conditions uh, to use kind of board game analogy. Mitch McConnell's able to do a lot more because his victory condition is nothing changing. Uh, Mm. And he can break the system even because his victory condition is also government doesn't work. So if he makes government not work, that inures to his benefit. Whereas fundamentally, the Democrats' argument is government is a useful institution so they can't really blow it up to get what they want because they fundamentally then get hand over the argument that, hey, government do- isn't real, it doesn't really work, whatever. And that complicates what they do, which is why McConnell, while a master of the parliamentary procedure games he's been playing for years, he's kind of being judged on a lower degree of difficulty, I think. He, he has an easier job than other people do. But yeah, no, it, it, it is interesting. And your point, though, about legitimacy, it, it really is interesting given that John Roberts took this job very much with, it took the chief job very much with an eye towards, I care about the legacy of this court. I care about it seeming like it's trusted and building its institutional legitimacy. I, there's arguments that the way he made decisions, especially on like the Obamacare stuff, uh, he did stuff to 
he did phrase that opinion in a way that I ultimately gutted Commerce Clause cases down the road. But by siding with upholding Obamacare, he was, you know, setting it up. He was making a decision against his own interest because he didn't want the court to look illegitimate. But he's just been outnumbered, it seems. Well, let's finish up here by having a quick conversation about another story, one that I wrote. Uh, Brittany Greiner is in, has been detained in Russia, and she has been sentenced to nine years, which uh, it, she's being sentenced to that for having 0.02 ounces of cannabis in a vape pen. This, frankly, seems like it's more residue at that point than, <laughs> uh, than any actual drug smuggling. But nonetheless, Russia is sentencing her to nine years. Now, this is probably mo- largely just to set up the prisoner exchange that we know the State Department's working on, trying to make it as draconian a uh, sentence on their end so that they can demand that something bigger from us. Uh, if they just had her in for a year, we could say, oh, well, we'll give you some low-level person. I think they want to have a longer sentence to increase their leverage to ask for some like high-end arms dealer or something like that. But the interesting thing about this discourse and what I was writing about in this story is that we there's a lot of moral high horse eising about the uh, about a nine year sentence is so ridiculous for just possessing weed. And that's where I, I, I agree. And I also think people need to look a little bit in the mirror. <laughs> and I remind you that a couple months ago, Mississippi affirmed a life sentence for somebody who had one and a half ounces of weed. Life sentence without possibility of parole. Mm. That's happening in 2022 in the United States. It's hard to even it's hard to even break that down. Like it's so facially like damn near Disney villain. <laughs> yeah. So like well, like the, there are TV shows the, about soccer moms like making yeah. money from selling like large amounts of weed, right? Yeah. Snoop Dogg's I whole mean, career, besides the gang <laughs> rap and like beating the case, is about how much he smokes. Him and Seth Rogen, like it's. America I mean, is the, the height of like love the culture, hate the people. I don't, I don't get yeah. it. Well, and so, so on the one level, when you're when you're talking about a country with a broken rule of law uh, and very much backwards, uh, don't worry, Mississippi's telling Russia to to hold their beer. Secondly, though, I the one thing that I thought was interesting about this case is the people and the the judges and the majority of this opinion took the stance. It's wrong to say that we're doing this just for possess it, him possessing weed. We're doing this because he has prior violent convictions. One, I don't understand why that would have anything to do with this. Uh, at the point that you put them away for life without possibility of parole off of an arrest for possession, it is about that. It isn't about the previous stuff. But also, the... And this is very law school exam, again, another law school exam moment. The more I dug into this case, the quote unquote violent convictions were for burglary, which you might remember is the nonviolent form of stealing. Uh, And the reason why he's got this violence conviction is Mississippi decided to pass a law declaring even though burglary is nonviolent, it counts as a violent conviction for the purposes of this, this sentencing magnifier. 
But it gets worse because they didn't pass that law until he'd already been released from his original burglary conviction. So it's an ex post facto magnifier on his later conviction. Yeah, it's a it's it's a mess. Land of the free uh, people. Procedural. Land of the free. Yeah, yeah. The point, though, is when we criticize uh, how broken the Russian courts are here, uh, and absolutely we should, uh, because it seems horrific. Uh, remember, it, it, it's happening close to home, too. And that was the real takeaway I had from this story. And before we get the email, yes, we realize Joe said Mississippi said to Russia, hold my beer instead of hold my vodka. You're so clever. <laughs> Please don't send that email in. Well, no, no, I no, I mean, I mean, Mississippi would have the beer if, if it were the other way around. Russia would be like, hold my vodka, I think, is the argument, right? Well, w- wouldn't Mississippi also say hold my moonshine? Uh, maybe, maybe. I guess they could have also done. I mean, they wouldn't moonshine. say hold the blunt. That- no, clearly not. <laughs> uh, unless, unless they want they want somebody who has a prior burglary conviction to be holding it. Uh, but yeah, no, they, I think this is. This is a very bad beer kind of situation <laughs> when we're talking about Mississippi. Not a Schlafly. One good thing yeah. has come out of St. Louis, Schlafly beer. I support that. Oh, interesting. The trolley, horrible. Money sink, mm. millions of dollars. Just get a bus with wheels that looks like a trolley. Schlafly beer, I approve of it. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty much everything we have. So everybody subscribe to the show so you get new episodes when they come out. You should be giving reviews, stars, write something. It helps everybody uh, find the show. You should be following us on social media. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at Rights for Rent. You should be listening to the other shows on the Legal Talk Network. I'm also a panelist on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable for anybody interested in legal tech. Uh, which you we got do it. Every Friday. Yeah, there you go. You get it and, every day, uh, uh, Catherine isn't here. I mean, I know how it, I, I, yeah, it's a happy, it's journalist happy hour. <laughs> anyway, we also have, uh, you should also read Above the Law. Uh, I think I said the other shows on the Legal Talk Network, but if I didn't, I'll also say that. And uh, with all of that, I think we're, we're good to go. See you next week. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.